Hello and welcome to our latest podcast, where we look at the world of outdoor festivals and the challenges promoters and operators face in this sector. Today I'm joined by Alex Brook, the co-founder of Peppermint Events. Hi uh, Alex, thanks for joining us today. Hey. In 2003, Alex Brook and Adam Hempenstall formed Peppermint Events to deliver fresh event concepts and high quality bars outdoor events. Peppermint now services over 40 events every year, primarily delivering premium bar solutions to one-day concerts, sports events, and music festivals. And over the last 15 years, Peppermint has developed long-standing client relationships with the likes of AEG, Henley Regatta, Royal Ascot, Rawbit Live, and of course, Live Nation. Thank you for joining me again, as I say today, Alex. And can I start by asking you how you've seen industry change from an operational point of view in those early days of 2003? Yeah, no, it's um, great to be involved with this one, and um, I think you know the industry has changed dramatically, really, in in the last fifteen years. Um, you know, the, the the nature of events, what clients want to get out of events, and I think what the consumers looking for um, themselves have, have all changed a lot. And in the early days, uh, it was an embryonic industry. There were the big players, the big events that we all you know know and love of today, um, and obviously that all blossomed into a, a large boutique and uh, alternative scene that uh, that we got quite heavily involved with. And that drove, uh, you know, demand for, for doing things differently, um, whether it be what we served, the way we served it, um, and just taking a, a really different perspective uh, on, on what had been seen as the norm, I think, you know, back in, uh, in the early days of festivals, where really from our perspective, it was a lot about big white tents serving one or two types of product. And, uh, you know, the customer experience, I think, was, was, was really secondary. And, and if you look at today's events, you know, you can get anything from a handshaking cocktail to a you know, full VIP experience at pretty much most events. And in that time, a lot more brands have come into the, the festival um, sector. We know, I, I know that you've been working with Fever Tree, for example. Is working with brands very much an important part of your strategy for the future? Yeah, and I, and I think it comes back to what we what we know what I just said in terms of uh, both the consumer and our customer, the festival organisers, you know, desire to the premium the premiumisation, as it were, of, of of the market. You know, brands play a large part in that, whether it be in the assets they deliver, whether it be in the product that they serve. Um, obviously, you know, from a financial point of view, festivals are a challenging market. Um, you know, the break-evens are, are very high and the difference between profit and loss is huge. So um, it, the ideology of a brand coming in and investing in certain ways in events is, is an important part of the, the, the ecosystem of those festivals from a financial point of view. And, you know, for us, having access to brands and bringing that value add makes a real difference to the service that we offer. So, yeah, things like, you know, the work we do for Fever Tree and a whole host of other brands is, is really important because... You know, it gives us an edge, it gives us an offering um, that's not necessarily totally unique. Clearly, lots of people can work that's with right. Fever Tree um, or work with any other brand, I hasten to add. But, you know, if you've got those, uh, those, those relationships and you're able to bring the right brand to the right event, kind of everybody wins and not everybody can do that. So for us, having those relationships is incredibly important because it, uh, it gives us a USP. And in a, in a low margin market, you know, you need a USP. You need to be able to deliver something um, that, that others maybe can't do as easily. What, what's driven low margin? Um, people, I think, always think festival operators uh, enjoy yeah, a, a good income and uh, it's very profitable. It's, I noticed straight away you've mentioned low margin on a couple of cases. Have you found that the margins are being eroded 
yes. year by year. And what's eroding them then? Is it is it compliance? It's, it's is a it regulation? real it's a real mixture of, of things. I think you know back in the early days of our career, you know the, the the cost of goods, the cost of operating was a lot lower. So you know you could buy beer cheaper. Um, there was less pressure from duty. There was certainly less pressure from a wage point of view. And and you know one of the biggest increases we've seen over a short period of time has been the whole cost of uh, itinerant labour. Um, and you know the margins have also been shrunk by the fact that it's a, a trendy thing, an interesting marketplace for other people to want to get into. So the number of competitors has grown, uh, the cost of operating has increased, the pressures on our clients to make more from their um, from their events because they're under more pressure. It's it, you know it runs from the top down. You know that yes the industry's grown, yes there are more events, yes there's you know more work to be had. But conversely, the pressures, both from a governmental legislative point of view, have certainly sort of put a huge strain from uh, the two core elements that we work with, staff and stock. Um, but then the market is more competitive. So, you know, so when we talk about staff, yeah. obviously, hospitality industry has a shortage of people as it is. Um, lots of fears going forward on the outcome of Brexit. Are you finding it hard to find the staff you need? Are you finding it hard to find those with the skills you need? Or is it just the matter that they're costing you more? I think it's Brexit is a really interesting um, point and, and it's very difficult for us to see exactly how Brexit will affect our business because we sit on the periphery of hospitality as a whole. You know, I think if we run a hotel or a guest house or, you know, or, you or, know, a, bar. or a bar <laughs> yeah. or, or a restaurant, yeah. um, a fixed venue site... Um, I think I would be very, very nervous about the deeper and longer term impact of you know the right kind of labour being available. We tend to recruit through agencies on very short term uh, basis. So you know we tend to need five people for one event, a thousand for another, two hundred for another. Um, we need them for eight to ten hours a day. Um, so maybe twenty or thirty hours over the weekend, and then we don't need them anymore. So we're not actually fishing in the same pond as peppermint specifically we're fishing most probably more from within inner city um, from from large conurbations from student population mostly not finding our labor force actually coming from europe we're actually finding them being you know local uh, to to the environment that we're working in um, I think there is a genuine challenge around the cost of labor and I think your point around the quality of labor is really interesting you know hospitality isn't a profession in this country and that's actually a real negative for us because um, you know most people who are coming to work from us in terms of the core bulk staff you know just just don't really have enough experience to really add a lot of value so where we spend a lot of, of our time where we find the biggest challenges is in the, the bar managers the yep. supervisors what we call the event managers so the guys that have you know guys and girls that are are actually operating and, and managing, managing it. And I think, you know, the, the challenge there really isn't necessarily driven by Brexit. I think it's just driven by the fact that there aren't necessarily a very large group of people that do it. So, you know, the, the cost of keeping concurrent labour force happy and in a seasonal business, you know, so we have different challenges. We're, we're a seasonal business, so therefore we'd love to employ everyone full time to keep the continuity and the labour, the skill set up. We can't always do that. So it's this forever never-ending cycle of who's going to come back and what rate and why and you know it's a competitive market and I think that's driven by the fact that festivals specifically are quite niche they're quite challenging in terms of 
um, the hours, the conditions you work in. You know, you're not working in a nice glossy five star hotel. You're working in the field. You're working in the field. It might be freezing cold. You yeah. might be away for camping. days at a time. You're camping. Yeah. Um, those are really more the challenges for us. Is actually in, in incentivizing with uh, within sensible rates. You know, yeah. and that's that balance between you know the fact that a lot of these guys are not hyper skilled. You know, they're not accountants or whatever it yeah. might be. But conversely, you know, they, 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 we need to ask them to work in challenging environments and, and do relatively skilled jobs. So I think we find the lack of a pool of, a deep pool of resources to be a bigger challenge than Brexit per se. I think you touched on something that UK hospitality have been working with the government with quite a lot uh, recently, which is trying to get people to think about hospitality as a career. You, mm. you, know, you said it's not a profession. Well, actually, what I think we're looking to do now, the government's looking to do with the, with the help of UK hospitality, is to start planting those seeds with people as they're going through college, yep. because you can start at a Peppermint, start as an event manager, become a bar manager, and work your way to be you know, the chief financial officer or chief marketing officer of a, of a, a large chain. Do Peppermint have a, a, a scheme where you try to bring people through, or are you just really much, very much looking at that interim market? No, I mean, it's actually a really... Uh, relevant point you know within peppermint um, there are a number of people sitting outside you know here in the office who started off as a bar manager and, right. and now work for us on a, on a full-time basis and you, you know we we definitely believe you know very much about growing good people um, you know if you know somebody comes into our business you know we, we have the system to see um, to, to understand and look at and find those people who shine bright um, and you know we will actually you know give them a, a great career path um, for those that, that want to, to be there want to do it and, and show the right skill sets to actually perform a, a more full-time role and I think I think when I say that you know hospitality isn't an ind- isn't seen as so much as a career I think true hospitality i.e. you know sort of the, the hospitality that we all think of whether it be in venues or hotels and so forth i think there is a, a more defined career path i think the events side of hospitality mm-hmm. you know especially the bar side which we're so heavily involved with you know in, in other countries like australia and ireland and various other places you know working in those roles is a profession you know you get more qualifications right. you get more skills it's more well defined in terms of uh, um you know and recognised as a profession, and I think that in in that way we've tried to certainly take um, good people and mirror that but path. It, but it's finding those good people. But it's finding those good place. people in the first place, yeah. and 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 you know being truthful about it, it's somewhat of a potluck process yeah. because you know you'll get an intake of five or ten people at the season. You might have lost half of them within the first two weeks because yeah. people think it's all sitting around out the back of the main stage and you know having a drink with. Jamiroquai, however it might be, you know, not, not, that's a very up-to-date example, but you know what I mean. Um, and and they realise that actually it's 15, 18-hour days yeah. marching around the field in whatever weather conditions, really grafting pretty hard. Yeah. And and those that shine in that space, you know, we, we, we certainly help evolve a career path for them. And, and I think I think any good operator should be should be you know looking at that homegrown talent as a real important part of uh, of, of how they grow the business. Um, you touched on when we were talking about margin. Um, as competitors in the marketplace. We've also seen the demise of some operators, some festivals. Has that been purely because of the drive down of margins or have there been some other areas that have caused those people, I mean, we've obviously the weather is at a risk, have there been just some more generic issues in the industry that are forcing more and more competitors out of the market? 
Yeah, I, th- I think there are more than I think there are more factors. I think you know you look at a lo- some festival operators. There are there are different camps of festival operators. There are lifestyle operators, i.e., people who've got the wherewithal financially themselves, whether it be they've got the land, the opportunity to actually base the festival, whether it be the fact that they were you know heavily involved in the music scene and sort of evolved events out yeah. of the back of that and the sort of maturation of their of their sort of early days as promoters, you know, have grown to be to, to be festival operators. Then you've got the, the commercial festival operators, the blue chip companies that are sort of heavily funded and, you know, really look at these things on a on a very sort of commercialised basis. And, you know, I think if the 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 danger within certainly the, the independent festival sector has been that balance between staying independent but also having the structure within your business to actually allow you to understand the commercials of your event and so I think when you take a whole range of factors I think you know if you look over the last 15 years there's become a saturation very quickly so you started off with very you know with a very small group of real festivals and now have you know every corner of the country's got a whole variety of festivals so I think saturation um, has been a major part of it I think um, a lot of a lot of the independent festivals were funded with um, lifestyle investors yeah and as we've seen large economic t- downturns you know clearly the, the headspace the financial headspace for lifestyle investments the funding of play projects uh, had you know was boomed um, pre the crash and you know, then it was a large withdrawal of that kind of access to that kind of, you know, that type of money, and I think that put a lot of people under pressure that there wasn't a free flow of capital into the world of festivals to patch up the holes of bad weather and yeah. so forth. I think, you know, consolidation in the market has has led to a real problem in the lack of headliners, and I think that that has, um, you know, so the fact that smaller operators are having a massive struggle in gaining the talent that they want at a fair price which sells the tickets which which sells the tickets yeah. which also kills the P&L yeah. you know so you either go down the road of well sod it I'll pay for the, the big money but then you know my, my P&L is, is, is completely sort of hanging on the back of selling the tickets so I think what you've seen is the, you know consumers as well the weather hasn't helped, you know, so therefore the European scene has become more and more interesting to festivals. And Are I you think in the European scene as well? We're not, no, because we've been lucky enough that there's been enough good work in the UK to keep us happy. But right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if you're a, a young festival goer and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I've done all these UK festivals, so why not let's try the, the you know, the European market? And um, that takes some ticket holders out of it. So I think there's a, a whole host of factors. It's, it's certainly not just one thing. I think... You know, festivals cost a huge amount of money to run. There's a very fine line between substantial loss and, and, and profit. Funding is incredibly challenging because it takes a very certain type of investor yeah. to, to do that. It's not really um, an investment in some ways. No, and there are some specialists, there are some venture capital funds, there are some, you know, some, some, some real financial institutions who do facilitate investments into those festivals. Um, but I certainly think that... That, you know the independent market itself has, has, has definitely found you know that the largest struggles because they don't have the backing to ride out the bad years which clearly you know from a weather point of view are very relevant um, you talked about people thinking about getting into this space um, if a small operator decided to come into the market is there any advice you'd give them about how they should look maybe medium to long term rather than just to sort of in the short term to to achieve that sustainability that you mentioned, yeah, I mean, I think I think 
a lot of my thoughts uh, if I live my life again if, if you like and what would I would do differently and what do I feel sort of you know the challenges are I think I think overhead is 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 the killer uh, in, in this business I think the balance between having a great team of people on a continual basis which drives your overhead up yeah. um, versus being lean and, 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 and nimble um, is a is a continual challenge and how you know you could deliver that is an incredibly important part I think to sort of riding out the tough times um, I think you know clearly looking at what you know ultimately I think what, what people want in this sector is you know the freedom if you were a new small operator to to look at the trends of today and three three years down the line would help um, potentially drive some market share um, but you know, like all of these things, you know, most probably sort of fairly standard business principles. I think you know, it's an incredibly challenging world to to yeah. to get a foothold in. Um, you know, it's become more and more about liquidity. It's become more and more about uh, asset base. It's become more and more about what can you bring me. It's become more and more about leveraging volume and relationships. But like everything, you know, clearly, you know, fifteen years ago we were nobody, and we now have a twenty-five million pound a year business. You know, it's uh, in revenue terms. You know, clearly our competitors have come and gone. You know, there is definitely a space here for, for new people. Um, I think it's about looking at the niche, the niches that are there. I, I, we never went for the big guys straight, you know, for the big events straight away. You know, we, we had to build and, 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 you know, we, you know, we went after certain spaces that we felt were, were wide open. And to be fair, they were wide open because, um, you know, clients wanted to do something differently. Um, and I think we still see that today. We still see certain, um, you know, large venues that you think would never want to go down a certain path, um, being you know, doing doing deals with with all sorts of operators yeah. of all sorts of sizes because they want the latest gym bar, or they want the latest you know craft beer offering, or they want sustainability in that way, and they're willing to pay for it. And I think you know, if the product is great, I mean, really great then there is a conversation to be had with all sorts of people. Um, but, you know, that takes investment. Yeah. Over so the long term. Over the long term. And I think it's, it's a very, very, very tough market. Because I'll say the last thing on it. Unlike, you know, you build something on the high street and you market it well and you're in the right place and you did the right deal and you didn't spend too much on capital expenditure and you fit out, you should do okay. What we have is the challenge of all of those sort of factors, plus weather, which is huge, Plus, promoters being promoters, and you know they're our lifeblood. But you know, at the end of the day, if the tickets don't get sold, we still turn up. Yeah. And you know that can be a very bad day at the office. Um, like every industry, technology is galloping forward, um, and the festival business is also being yep. quite quick to embrace and, and activate technology. Have Peppermint been using technology um, in a way that has? improve their business or is it about the customer experience yeah i mean i think technology is a fascinating space and the answer to both those questions is yes we've been doing it to, you know for both sides of the coin really we were one of the very first people to bring ipad tills um to the market um and with that we brought the ability to utilize credit card very early on um obviously still challenged around the physical infrastructure yeah. of the internet um but you know nowadays Clearly, everyone has to have a, a some form of online till system. If you're not there now, you really are in trouble. So, you know, for us, what did that really mean, and what does it mean today? Well, number one, it meant 
um, you know, clearly ease of payment um, for the consumer, um, which meant more revenue to be generated, um, and it meant therefore hopefully a better customer experience um, because the bars were quicker and you didn't just have to find the cash machine to then to then you know to, to then buy a drink at the bar. Um, so that had a benefit both to the consumer experience but to the revenue. And that so that's a very basic thing, right? That's pretty obvious. Um, in terms of us as an operator and I think as our clients, understanding information is, is really a sort of a large part of this. So you know what we did is we've created a lot of bespoke back-end dashboards and reporting functionality a lot of apis coming in yeah. from our epos and uh, and card providers to enable us to compare year on year revenues bar by bar hour by hour line by line you know forward projecting where revenue is going to land so we have the right staff in the right places um you know we're now flying with a heads-up display we aren't flying with a blindfold on. It's and a lot more, exactly more sophisticated it's than, huge, than sophisticated. people would imagine. Oh, it's, and, and, yeah. it, and it's, you know, dashboards and online yeah. reporting for sponsors, for clients, for us as an operator, for staffing levels, to see hotspots, to understand when we can trim staff, when we need more staff, and it goes on. So from that point of view, technology's been, been huge. I think the next step in technology um, for us is all around going to a more of a sort of handheld scenario so um, rather than shared till yeah. systems why do we want to do that um, pressures on margin you know the moment we're a five pound we're round number people we have to be because as I always use the example if anyone listening to this podcast can tell me what six times five five pound eighty five is like that I probably could but I'm not you probably could but, you're not going to. But, um, but you know what I'm saying whereas you know five fives are 25 yeah. that's pretty easy right so the minute that we can go to a scenario where we essentially put a calculator in the server's hand, we, we, you know, we're able to um, talk to the customer with the till there and we're able to sort of to, to understand the order process even better, um, I think is the next evolution of, uh, of, of where we go with this. And that then gives us the move towards cashless without going RFID, although RFID is very interesting from a data harvesting point of view. Um, I think this is something you know you could talk about for hours and hours and hours because it's such an interesting space. There's so much technology around this space, whether it be with closed loop and RFID, whether it be with open loop and contactless, whether it be with a hybrid system that sits in between the two. Um, the benefits are really broad. You know, the idea of taking cash out, big thing for many many reasons, both consumer and internal and commercial. Um, the benefit of, of tweaking margin by going up in five p's, two p's, because we're not using cash anymore. That's huge, you know, for us because it means that the consumer will also get better value. Because the next step is what six quid. Well, why can't it be five eighty five? Because actually, that's what covers the margin loss by the duty or the yeah. whatever it might be going or the, up. The fee from the transaction. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's. And then there's the ideology of using technology to drive spend. And that's clearly the, the holy grail for all of us is how do we get more money out of everybody, you know, not being a megalomaniac. But, you know, ultimately that's the challenge, isn't it? So pre-ordering, ordering stuff before you get there, gifting parents, gifting children or relatives, um, you know, uh, some money on a card to spend. And so therefore that person still maybe takes that money and the money they already had and they will spend both of it. I think a lot of people spend on site is not limited to the fact that they're drunk or have eaten too much. It's because they run out of money because yeah. life is expensive. So, you know, incremental additions in revenue, um, the ability to pre-order in intervals and intermissions at certain types of events, and it goes on. You know, that, that's really, really, really so, exciting so you, for our industry. Given the economic conditions, all the other things we spoke about, 
Are you optimistic over the, for your business for the next 18 months, three years? Are you cautious? Are you concerned? I mean, where, where's I'm, your kind of sentiment at the moment? I'm, 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 an, I'm more of an optimist than a pessimist, I suppose, in life. But I'm optimistic for it for a number of levels. I think at, purely at Peppermint, you know, we, we get such exciting, interesting inbound inquiries that, you know, I don't feel like the opportunities are drying up. I think if we continue to, as a business to be, you know, to, to invest in technology, to you know, bring forward new products, whether it be draft cocktails, whether it be, you know, the next thing from that takes over from gin and ensure that we've got the right products that people want to consume. We, we ensure that we manage our clients really well. There's plenty of work out there. And I think what's interesting when we saw the 2008, uh, you know, meltdown happen, it actually, to my mind, you know, drove staycation. It drove more people holidaying in the UK. Um, and if you look at a lot of the statistics around specifically the millennial and the, and the you know, the generation that, you know, that we're seeing coming through underneath, um, the spend on alcohol may be potentially dropping, but the spend on experiences, i.e. going yeah. out, is increasing as a proportion of what, what they spend their pay packet on. And we, we deliver to the experience industry. Yeah, so so we, we, speaking with more traditional operators... What you said is absolutely correct. People are drinking less, but they are probably eating more. Yeah. Staying out a bit later. Yeah. Um, so I think you're you're reflecting very much the trend nationally in all in all hospitality. And we don't see, and I think the difference between traditional operators, you know, and, and so and maybe student unions even, where you're seeing sort of this very interesting statistic about 25% of student aid, you know, of people currently at university don't drink at all. Um, yes, I'm sure that's right, but at the same time, that comes down to us. I mean, bizarre enough, I don't drink. And I'm, I'm not a recovering alcoholic, but I don't drink, you know, and I think that premium softs, you know, this is, I'm talking about product evolution. Okay, so the, 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 the peop- less people are drinking, fine, but they're still going out. That's you know, right. and we're still I, I delivering a, beverage to them. And I think there's a demographic thing in the younger audience as well, that there are a lot of people who just don't drink. Yeah. Uh, for principal reasons. Exactly. Because they don't like alcohol. Definitely. And as, I think, you know, we see that across, you know, across, you know, I've lived in London all my life, yeah. you know, it's a very diverse population. I think the country is becoming more diverse, but it comes back to my point. If you're going to sit there and sell, you know, cans of whatever that people don't want, you know, then, then you know, you're like the selling. dinosaurs, you will yeah. go, you know, and, and, and I think if you're there selling, you know, low sugar, um, skinny drinks, soft drinks, 0% beers, um, you know, finding the balance in that range, um, you know, and, 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 and so forth, I think. And I think in that the, the, the outdoor sector is the pinnacle of those experiences, those sort of premium experiences people want, because it's, it's like a concert plus. You've got plus the amazing sunset yeah. and the amazing 80,000 people, not 8,000 people, and the incredible experience you have with your friends afterwards and the journey getting there and all of that stuff. So people most probably are at their most you know, sort of open to buying into those experiences and of course that does include drinking and trying new products and so forth so I think we're in a very good place more so even in the high street to deliver those those amazing experiences that I think the generation that buy them want to experience well they're clearly able to react quicker because you yeah. haven't got the fixed the fix yeah. unit but are you also um, thinking about the environmental issues that we've seen quite a few yeah. pictures of festivals Huge. with waste everywhere yeah, and it's obviously there's you know, there's no glass at festivals. It's all about plastics. Um, I saw recently that, that uh, a, a sports event have gone plastic-free. 
Um, are you thinking in that way? Are you having to think in that way? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we absolutely we are. Um, we, we know we produce a lot of plastic, you know, you can't sugarcoat that. Um, we do that through necessity rather than desire. Um, and yes, the answer to your question is we have a number of initiatives that we're working feverishly to, to bring in as, as, you know, the every, to become the everyday way of working. You know, just this year, just gone, we moved a lot of our water from being single-use plastic to a canned product. Um, actually, this canned product is available with a resealable lid, which makes it quite an interesting product. Um, we've, um, we've moved towards um, the doing the same thing with, with as many of our package ranges yeah. as we can. Um, one of the big initiatives, challenges we've got is around the single-use plastic cup. Um, and we're working really, really close with some very, very interesting people who are both professional environmentalists, you know, actually can give some real science and, and, and sort of depth to this thinking, because it is a minefield. It is an absolute yeah. minefield, this space. And the reason I say that is, you know, your festival promoter might have done a waste management contract, and they might think their waste is doing something that actually it's not, because, you know, it's not thought about enough. Um, for this to become truly different, it needs to be totally joined up between promoters and operators yeah. and brand partners. There are many, many moving parts. Um, but in short terms, one of the big drivers we have is to look at closed loop. So the ideology of collecting on site the single use cups, yep. uh, chipping them, um, then reforming them into new cups or using 3D printers to create really cool stuff like the furniture for the VIP garden or merchandise, things that ultimately would have used virgin plastic now can use recycled plastic from... Back from to technology again, aren't Yeah, we're back, back to, to technology. technology, we're back to having the right partners, yeah. we're back to understanding the core drivers in the market. But look, it's just like, you know, why do we still have black plastic food trays in the supermarket? Is it because the supermarket doesn't care? No, I don't think it is. I think it's actually because if you talk to them, the, the supply chain, there's a lag in the supply chain. It takes years and years and years for this to become the norm. And I think, you know, for my kids who are like nine and seven or whatever now, um, you know, when they're 18, the world will be a different place because I think the supply chain will have evolved to ensure that recycling is a completely... And they're learning about it at a young age. And they're completely so I, learning I'm about it. Yeah. is really aware of... Yeah these issues yeah. and, and whereas we probably didn't think about we're them. less aware and that will put pressure on suppliers yeah. to adjust no, I th yeah and I think you know again it's another subject where we, from a detail point of view we could talk about this for a whole you know podcast you know it's 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 challenging it's not joined up um, there's a lot of nonsense talked about certain types of vessels that are you know ultimately being pushed for commercial gain that in truth, I don't believe do actually deliver the environmental you know, impact in the greenfield environment that they're touted to do. So I think we have to be careful not to get on a bandwagon here. You know, Peppermint's point of view is we will make informed decisions which are justifiable and ultimately you know, we, can, we, we can prove why we made those decisions and they actually have true benefit. What we won't do is just jump on the bandwagon and say we can, you know, if I hear someone talk about getting rid of straws one more time, I think I'll, you know, <laughs> knock my head against the wall because, you know, come on, like straws, who the hell needs them? They certainly don't need to be plastic. And, you know, the easy win should have been done as we did, you know, a couple of years ago. It's, uh, it's really about finding the meaningful changes that actually deliver true uh, differences rather than 
putting it in a brochure and saying we're environmentally friendly, but actually, not really. we're not. Finally, we, we ask everybody one question at the end of, of our podcast, and you can answer it in whatever way you want. But if you had one wish for 2019, maybe for yourself or for Peckman, what would it be? Yeah, hard, it is a hard question and, and, and always one I sort of struggle with. I mean, on a very, very incredibly base level, you know, it'd be lovely to have a nice summer because, by God, from a commercial point of view, um, uh, you know, the weather is such a huge determining factor to our success. Um, I, I think, you, you know, that's a very selfish sort of thing that's to fun. want, but, you know, I think at a very baseline level uh, and something that everyone can sort of understand, if you like. A 10-month summer. Yeah, I mean, it will just, you know, no torrential rain yeah. I would live with. Um, you know, it's the, you'd be amazed how we've been in certain events this year where we've been sitting with a promoter on a Friday afternoon, all sort of, you know, rosy cheeks and happy. And then on Sunday morning, we're uh, wading around in 10 foot of water and mm. the events had to shut. And, and, you know, that's a worrying sign of our times, but it's certainly um, something we could do without as a business. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed chatting with you and uh, hopefully you'll get your wish for a long, hot summer in 2019. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks very much.